Wow, I think we just saw peak Formula E. Hello, and welcome to the Race Formula E podcast season finale special. After a title decider that only the ABB FIA Formula E Championship could have delivered, we have the inaugural world champion. This show will look at how Nick DeVries earned that honour, and over the next few weeks we hope to talk to the new champ, as well as reflect on the season as a whole. But today is all about Tempelhof, and joining me, Andrew Vandenberg, is our Formula E guru, Sam Smith. Sam, there's an enormous amount to unpack from last weekend's action, but if you had to sum it up in a single sentence, what would it be? It would either be Formula E bloody hell, to borrow the legendary Sir Alex Ferguson's quote, or something like, well, what what we witnessed, did we witness the final 2021 riddle that was wrapped up in an, in an enigma or sealed in a big box of bonkers? All I could think of when that, opening bit of the um, second race was playing out was uh, that commentary from Murray Walker at the 82 Monaco Grand Prix. And this is unbelievable! Because it just was. It was, and it's a good analogy to make. It was like that in reverse, wasn't it? I mean, we saw three title contenders go out within, what, 50 metres of the start? It was just the most dramatic way. I mean, trying to, you know, trying to process all that with barely a lap of the race gone was was pretty extraordinary um but you know should we have uh, should we have anticipated anything less with formula e this year there was always that feeling that it wasn't going to be just a follow me leader uh, quiet race to the to the title i mean it actually ironically ended up a bit like that for de vries at the end although he he kind of did his best to uh, to get some late action with the, the the jostling pack but ultimately it was just it just beggared belief and um, like i said entirely fitting with with 2021 indeed and regular listeners to the show will know that we've been trying to play with formats or whatever and now pretty much dispense of that idea and we'll now move to what might be described as jazz podcasting um <laughs> But also, hopefully, you'll notice as well that I have a new mic. So thank you for all of you who've been suggesting that I do just that. Um, as you said, pre-race, literally three quarters of the grid still had a mathematical chance of taking the title. But by the time they lined up for that final race, in reality, there were really only four drivers still in contention. Um, but as we say, those unbelievable scenes, three of those four were eliminated before a racing lap had been completed. Um, so I'm going to have to try to explain what it was that actually happened to Mitch Evans, Edo Mortara and Jake Dennis there. Well, all three were just incredibly unlucky because they'd done the hard work, in fact, on Saturday by getting the decent points that they needed. And then they got reasonable grid positions. Uh, maybe, you know, Mortara was a bit further back, but you know, they'd done a lot of the, the hard graft. Evans was in the box seat, that was clear, uh, in third place on the grid after doing a, a really stellar job. It was all set for the Kiwi to go for it, and he just didn't get away from the grid. Uh, I reckon for a few seconds, Mitch Evans genuinely would have believed he was about to wake up in his hotel bed sweating after the mother and father of all nightmares. It was just it was just that absolute definition of a nightmare, wasn't it? Uh, a scenario that you would just fear was going to happen and it did um once he realized it wasn't a nightmare um he would have had a few seconds before he got a massive thud on the back of the helmet because that's when Mortara who unbelievably was second in the title at that stage creamed into him on the on the grid he was Edo was just completely unsighted um Jake Dennis another genuine title contender as he said was just dodged the Jaguar and and that made Mortara unsighted it was a set of circumstances that I think if you'd have read them in a script pre-race, you'd have just scrunched up the paper into a ball and tossed it in the bin. It was just ludicrous. So The only good thing to come out of it, of course, was that Mortara uh, or Evans and Evans were, were not badly injured because 
these sorts of shunts are, are particularly unpleasant. Edo's going to be a bit bruised for a while, but but thankfully that that's all. Um, yeah, and just it got even more crazy, didn't it, with Jake Dennis, where it was just crashing at the restart, and uh, like you say, it, it all went a bit 1982 Monaco in reverse. So if Jack got to the bottom of what happened to Mitch's car then? As of this morning, no. Um, it was a high-voltage failure of some description. The, the the presumption is that it was some kind of inverter failure, which just uh, uh, caused him to, to not get away. He did sort of do a, a couple of a couple of uh, metres, but that was about it. Um, there'll be a full investigation back at uh, Jaguar Racing's Grove Base to see what happened. But just absolute sod's law that it, it would be at such a crucial time. I mean, the crucial time when really he um, he had he had he had the best chance he will have he's ever had. I think of a title, um, and that's a really bitter pill to even start to process because you know how many more with the with the completely archaic way that Formula E was run this year and going into the last year of a rule set next year when it's going to be even closer because don't forget the cars are homologated for two seasons how many more chances are you going to get in the short term so uh just just really really unfortunate for for mitch and for jaguar also it's such a unusual failure for a formula e car because the, the, with the motors and whatever you, they don't stall like a traditional car if it had been in a f2 gp2 race they stall all the time it's uh it's a really unusual thing to happen yes it is it is um They've they've never had a failure like this. They've done thousands of kilometres of of testing and sim work. Of course, um, it's it, it's hard to speculate until they they take it apart and and see what the cause was. I mean, you know these these things are sometimes caused by a you know the, it's a bit of a cliche, but a you know a, a five pound part, aren't they? Um, it could be something a little more uh, catastrophic than that and far reaching. But I you know I. I I don't think it will be um, any any consolation to find out what it was. It's happened now, um, and it uh, it contributed to a, a real chance of the title being lost. After the race, uh, it was revealed that Mortara's 26G shunt have left him with some minor back injuries, but it, it seems that he's actually probably going to be okay. Yeah, he had a trip to the hospital. Um, he, he managed to walk to the pit and the circuit media set uh, medical center himself was diagnosed with a small fracture in his in one of his vertebra uh just completely ironic um that he started the season with a back injury with that that horrible shunt in Duria and then ends it in the in similar fashion uh just appalling luck really uh, just a shocking set of circumstances for him and that would have been a big fright as well i mean i don't think there's there's much worse than being in that situation where you you're under somebody's wing and jink out and see uh, see somebody stationary and, and knowing there's going to be a hell of a de- deceleration coming. He'll be sore for a few weeks, but he'll recover with, with a bit of physio and, and, and be back stronger. Uh, what I found a bit disturbing, actually, was that he was allowed to leave the car. I was listening to his radio, and you could hear he was he was winded, he was shocked. Um, but he actually, pretty soon after the shunt, did say to his engineer that he was okay. I don't know the exact sort of timeline of what happened or if he was if he was told to leave the car but um you know these things these things should be are supposed to be carefully managed before you know absolutely ascertaining there is no problem with the driver and, and then a, i i presume there would be an extrication process that, that from the radio 
um, sort of groaning on the radio initially and, and then knowing that he'd taken that that level of hit and they're supposed to go through these pretty stringent extrication policies but I'm sure that will be reviewed and, um, and and hopefully sort of streamlined a bit in the future. When uh, Dennis had his incident it looks on the TV pictures initially that he just made a mistake but it was clear when he got out of the car and his reaction that he was clearly you know, mystified by what had happened. Have uh, BMW Andretti got to the root cause of that yet? Not yet no not as Monday morning, um, I was, it was you know for sure it was a problem. I spoke to Roger Griffiths asked afterwards, and he said that that Jake had reported this uh, that there was a strange noise coming from uh, the back of the cockpit uh, from the powertrain cluster. Uh, it could have been uh, something to cause and spin the spin the motor up, and essentially meaning that when he lifted, it, it sort of kept driving, and then he, he lost control. Could be a brake by wire problem. Um, it sounds similar to something like that, but of course it's just speculation at this stage before they, they investigate and, and find out what actually happened. I mean, that, that's just that defining image of Jake Dennis crouched at the side of the track was was kind of heartbreaking, wasn't it? It sort of reminded me of, it was a bit hacking and Monza 99, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, with, without the undergrowth or the, the baying Tifosi. So you had to feel for him. You know, he, he went, he, the, the first time he drove a Formula E car was, was 11 months ago. And he's gone from a complete cold rookie to a genuine title contender in his first season. And it's not even a claim, it's a fact. He, he is by far the most successful rookie uh, in a championship. No rookie has ever won more than one race in their, their first season. And he's ticked that off. And he could have ticked the big one off. There was every, there's every chance with Evans out of the equation that, that Dennis, who was quick all weekend, could have uh, had a sort of an unlikely tilt at a rookie crown. But it just wasn't to be through sheer... You know, just again, similar to Evans, a uh, reliability issue which reared its head at the worst possible time. Absolutely. Well, as you alluded to a little bit earlier, with those three eliminated and Lucas de Grassi and Robin Frines way down the order, um, de Vries basically had the title won from there on. But despite that, his race was far from plain sailing. Yes, indeed. You know, whenever there's a title at stake, um, it's never plain sailing, is it? Until really the second phase of the race, there was still some work and pressure to be had. But more than that, really, I think in regards to securing the team's title, I think the, the driver's title, as we went into the last sort of 15 minutes, was fairly clear that, you know, even if he was on the periphery of the top 10, or even if he, you know, if he, he didn't score, there was still a chance that he would take the driver's crown. The team's title was a different thing. Um, and, you know, Envision Virgin had, had such a poor showing last weekend, which uh, in itself is a rarity. Uh, there was less, just less pressure than expected on, on, on Mercedes. But, yeah, De Vries, like I said, De Vries sort of <laughs> seemed to do his best to, to sort of bring that pressure upon himself in a way. He certainly wasn't wrapping himself in cotton wool in that last 10 minutes when there was a lot of jostling for, for sort of top top eight positions. Who was it he, he did that crazy dive down the inside of? Yeah, he got embroiled with Sims. Um, and it, it. and there, was a, there was a big... Um, sort of undercutting and an overcutting session with Sims. And he was quite vocal afterwards, um, criticising Alexander, which I, I actually thought was a little bit much, uh, to say the least. I think, you know, enjoy, celebrate your title, have a quiet word with with the guy if you think he was out of order. From what I've seen, it, it looked like it was just um, it was just regular fighting. But, of course, in De Vries's head, it, it shouldn't have been regular fighting. I think he expected some deference from some of the drivers but you know well ultimately why should they you know they're looking after their own race and they're trying to get points for their team to get them 
up the table in the team's championship themselves. So I I, I listened to a bit of De Vries's radio and I did ask him at the post event press press conference if he if he was told to cool it. Um that that he seemed to just get wrapped up in the moment. And um, his his engineer is a guy called Albert Lau, who is one of the most Zen voices you will ever hear. But I think even his uh, even his Zen was tested certainly in those last few last few moments of the race when there was a little bit of contact with teammate Steph, Stoffel Van Dorn. It could have gone extremely smelly for them, and that there didn't seem to be much reason. They were well in control, and there was no need to do that. But look, that's that's history now. It all turned out well. Uh, but you know, on other occasions and in other championships, you've seen disasters happen when you know you, you, your heart starts to rule your head we've had this most extraordinary topsy-turvy season but overall would you say he's a deserving champion I would yes yeah I would and I think from the very outset in Deer it was obvious that he was going to be a contender and that he was uh, probably be going to become a champion elect even at that stage of the season when we didn't realize how uh, anarchic this championship was was going to be and how difficult to predict and try and get a narrative as to what was going to happen even when he was in his troughs which was uh, Monaco onwards really until they came to London he was still chipping away a few points Puebla he got a handful of points and then in London the momentum came back and um, you know I think that's all part of a championship isn't it even on your bad days when you're not competitive such as Puebla they were able to to do it. So many troughs and peaks for everybody this season. But ultimately, De Vries had slightly fewer troughs and he was able to maximise some big scores when it mattered, particularly in London with that, those, uh, those two podium positions in London. Uh, he did make mistakes. That's absolutely guaranteed in Formula E. But as I said, he seemed to do less of everything on the negative side this season. And, and he... He kept a level head. I asked him actually in London if there was ever a time where there was doubt or there was um, or, or the morale dipped in, in the team, which naturally happens in sport and particularly motorsport. Uh, and, and genuinely, it never did. They were always completely focused on the next challenge and the next race. And I think psychologically, mentally, De Vries is a super strong driver. And that is mirrored by the team he's in and the... Um, the people he has around him, Albert Lau, his his engineer. Um, there are also people such as uh, Franco Chiacchetti in the in the championship, who I believe, actually, just thinking about it, is probably the only person to have won two champ to to win championships with different teams because he was Lucas Degrassi's engineer in season three. So I can't think of anyone else that will have won two titles with different teams or a title with different teams. And Frank Franco's no. a you know Franco's a great guy and a, and a and a great character in the paddock. So uh, congratulations to him and and the whole the whole team. But going back to De Vries, yeah, super strong. Uh, I think the question now is, of course, can Formula E keep him? There's going to be this. There's going to be this uh, tumult. I think in the, in the next couple of months of. Yeah, well, I was about to ask that. And, you know, obviously these Williams rumours keep rearing their head. I'm trying to think, would that be a good thing for Formula E or not? Because, you know, clearly it shows that it's on the radar, but it should be a destination itself rather than a stepping stone, right? It's it's a great question. I actually think for the, for the long-term perception of the championship, I actually think it's a good thing. Um, and I think it will make a lot of people realise that Formula E just isn't this quirky 
you know, weird cousin of motorsport is actually part and parcel of the framework that sits uh, prominently at an international level and it has mega top performers. I think you would agree, V2B, that probably at least half of that grid, if they were given a chance in a Williams next season, would do an absolutely stellar job. And they, and they oh, would yeah. be there on merit and they would get results and they would be just as good as a, a GP2 hot shoe or an experienced Formula One hand that's sort of dropping down or, you know, um, plateaued in their sort of midfield career or what have you. So I think De Vries, if he gets the opportunity, I think naturally, obviously, he's going to take it. But I think for the bigger picture of where Formula E stands, I think I can only see I can only see it been a positive. Yes, you know, lots of people will miss him, and but there, you know, there is a there is a long substitutes bench of talent waiting and and ready and keen to come into Formula E. So it's not like we're you know short of short of really good drivers coming into the championship. As you mentioned, Mercedes also wrapped up the team's championship. Um, again, was that the right result? From my perspective, it appeared that they probably had ultimately the fastest car, but it had a narrower operating window than, say, the Jag or uh, the DS. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, they, they were certainly... I mean, it's actually almost impossible to get a hierarchy, just the, just the chaotic nature of trying to judge who was there, especially with the qualifying format, which we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast before. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't deny that, that a driver, whether it was De Vries or, I, I would say, a good claim, Stoffel van Dorn. He only finished ninth in the championship. But when you consider that he was penalised in... Um, he was penalised in Valencia when he had pole position and, and probably would have at least you know, got big points, uh, top three points in that, probably would have won, I think... Well, he probably lost more points than he ultimately scored. Well, yeah, there's, there's, a, good, there's a good shout. That's a good shout. And, you know, Rome, he made that decision to defend from, from Lotterer when he probably needn't have done that. And then he got, you know, he got turfed off by Roland in, in London. So you're talking about, you're talking probably at least from those three races, you could easily be talking about, conservatively, 60 points. And if that, those had come off, he'd have, it'd have been a cakewalk. So... Yeah, I I spoke to him at length actually after the race yesterday, and um, yeah, similar kind of vibe came from him with without being too explicit on what you know the the ifs and buts and could haves, but I think certainly as a just as a whole, Mercedes EQ were were, were the strongest this season, and um, and they did it. They didn't have the consistency because let's not forget that there were days such as Monaco and um, and to some extent in well in New York as well, they just went missing. Um, mm. So it wasn't all they, they didn't get the maximum out of the car. So you, you're definitely right in that. And there was there seemed to be a narrow window where at some circuits and some conditions it didn't work. But they the one thing I noticed about them this year is that they were so much more they were so much so much more efficient and well drilled than they had been the previous ex- season, which you would expect. There weren't the penalties there weren't the overspikes on energy there weren't the the you know the grid penalties that they got the previous season they had they were operationally slicker than they had been at any time and ultimately when you combine that with the overall efficiency and quality of their package and their drivers then um, they were always going to be in the mix We've uh, speculated and ruminated on this show quite a lot about what's going to happen to Mercedes with their commitment to Gen 3 
Uh, and over the weekend, you wrote the, the story with the sort of final coup de grace that they will be off at the end of next season. Uh, why has it come to that? Well, uh, you know, there was uh, nothing like timing. Huh? I mean, we, we spoke to a few journalists, uh, colleagues of mine, and I spoke to Toto Wolf on Sunday morning, and um, he, he obviously didn't confirm the the, the rumours which were becoming more and more audible over the weekend and um, that the Mercedes would not commit to, to Gen 3. It's always been it's always been felt that it was a sort of a 50-50. It was never given that they were going to do it. Uh, but coming to the reason why, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really short word, isn't it, with so much meaning, but it's hard to understand. I did ask Wolf about the perception of it, if, they, if it was negative, you know, if the the decision he said has been made but they've they've not they've not released that decision yet we're expecting that in the next few days and it could well be that even when this podcast goes out that the um the, the decision is known publicly so the the presumption let's call it at this stage is that they're not doing gen 3 and the overwhelming evidence suggests that they they won't um and the reasons are, are really unclear what wolf did tell me was that it was internal that this wasn't some um, this wasn't some far-reaching reason uh, that it was to do with specifically to the to the championship. I mean, everything is collated and everything is um, discussed and decided upon, but this seems to be completely internal. And and from what Wolf said, he he sort of he he did say that it it was something within Mercedes. It's actually hard to pinpoint specifically what but the, the the fact that mercedes are going completely all electric and have been very vocal in that from an automotive point of view it just just gives it an extra sort of bafflement as to why they wouldn't want to market that at a world championship level when there is nothing else around okay if there was you know if electric gt had, had already matured and was a you know great proving ground for electric powertrains and was was reaching its tentacles out all over the globe then you know, maybe, yeah, go there. But there is nothing else. Um, there is no bigger show in town than, than Formula E from a global perspective. So, But at the same time, yeah, you know, we know that OEMs often miss the point with racing, don't they? they? They come in and out, and it's a bit of a trope, but it is partly true that they will go and do something else. It doesn't have to be motorsport. You know, they can go and, I mean, complete example this, but they could, they could go and sponsor a golf, a big golf tournament, or they could you know, they could yeah. go to Champions League or whatever. They don't have to do motorsport. So what you have to say is that, yes, it's an internal decision that they have made. We don't know if it's, we're presuming it is negative at the moment, but we're not privy to the detail. And, and Wolf wasn't going to expand on that or absolutely confirm that they were leaving Gen 3. But the big question now is if there is a, a life raft uh, to get the plan B in place and the intelligence from the weekend is that there will be that the the team and the facilities and the capabilities at, at, at Brackley now, um, which has moved over from HWA and all they have at, at HPP as well, you know, will not be will not be squandered for for an electric motorsport program. So it will live on, but we don't know the details of of how it will and, and what it will be called. Yeah, it's a really intriguing one, and uh, well, hopefully in the fullness of time we'll find out. Exactly what's going on there. Um, keeping on with the Mercedes EQ theme, though, we had a maiden winner on Sunday with the Mercedes-powered Venturi 
of uh, Norman Natto winning. A great drive, Sam. It was a really accomplished drive from Natto, and he's he's threatened to do it on several occasions. You know, he did have some misfortune earlier this season, especially at um, in Rome and Valencia, where he finished both races in podium positions, but then got penalties, and and in the case of Rome, was was kicked out entirely for a technical infraction. He's always had the capability to do it. Since that time, it's been it's really been up and down. I mean, there's been some. There's been some races where he's been anonymous and it just hasn't worked for him. But he was super, super slick. And he he used his attack mode strategy extremely efficiently and sort of towed up, uh, towed up Roland up and, and, and did a number on Van Dorn during the race. And, and then the, the pace was just consistent. His energy management was, was exceptional, oh, which, you know, before cool. that we'd seen pretty erratic... Um, use of the energy from him but I, I think it just encapsulates that if you stick with the driver and you back him and you give him confidence and you let him mature during the season he can you know they can they can bring big points and wins your way and the irony now, irony now of course is that you know this could be his last Formula E race he may have won his last Formula E race because the, the, the big uh, the big rumour or the hunch is that Lucas Degrassi is circling for that drive and, and could well be joining Edo Matara next season, but uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to wait on that one. I don't think they're going to make a decision particularly soon there. Um, but but Nato may well have given Susie Wolf a major headache with with that success on Sunday. Well, yeah, it seems um, it seems the wrong time to abandon him now, as you say. You know, once he's he's, he's got his eye in, and there aren't many drivers that have delivered wins as comprehensive as that. So I think it would have opened a few people's eyes to him then. Um, one guy who has uh, ended his uh, his career with one team before moving on to another was Oliver Rowland, who celebrated his last race for Nissan with a solid second place. Uh, he's really carried that team this season, hasn't he, Sam? He has. They've had such a such a desperate season, which is unlike Edams. You know, we're used to Edams winning all before them and always being contenders. But you know, the, the statistics tell tell their own tale. Between between Rowland and Buemi, they have scored ninety seven points, and when you consider that. That's pretty much half of what Mercedes EQ took the title with. Um, it's it's not great. There'll be some big debriefs, some important debriefs going on in in Le Mans, at Le Mans, which is where Nissan Edams are based. But of those points, Roland took seventy seven, and Buemi took twenty. So it was uh, it was a rout, really, wasn't it? I mean, yes, Roland mm. contributed the most, and he was pretty much every event. He he always had something on Buemi and why that was I'm not sure I did speak to Buemi uh, on Friday just before the race weekend in Berlin and you know he did he did admit that he hasn't been on top form this season he has had some bad luck that's for sure but also there was a there was talk of a, a technical issue which they believe they found at some stage after London and they changed things but that didn't really that didn't really benefit Buemi's form compared to, to Roland's that much over the weekend. So the, uh, yeah, the excuses are kind of uh, sort of just blowing away, aren't they there? And uh, again, it... well, I mean, Buemi was in group four for, if not all the season, he might've been in group three early on and, but never you turn that into his advantage. You know, it's, um, no, he didn't. It was very strange. He, he didn't. And I think, Roland was so strong, and and again, you know, the irony. We talked about ironies with with Nato, and we've talked about other things. Uh, Roland's off; he's off to Mahindra. You know, he's in the he's in the sim this week, and he's going to be announced 
imminently. Whereas, um, you know, Boemi's sitting tight with with Nissan. And look, I'm not saying that you know that that that, that Sebastian shouldn't be in that seat. What I'm saying is that he's probably over time he's he's, he's probably earned uh, you know a few bad performances. Oh, he's built up his reserves, hasn't yeah. he, over, over the exactly. years? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And but but Roland's super strong, and yeah, you can't fault his commitment this season. He absolutely got the most out of of what he had. As we mentioned, Van Dorn uh, helped Merck to win the championship by finishing third. And then uh, we had Andre Lotter with a typical sort of bullying drive in fourth and with Pascal Verlein sixth. A pretty decent end to Porsche's season there. Yeah, they, they got a bunch of points on home soil, but I, but I think actually that, that's a bit, I think it's a bit of a flimsy consolation after a season which promised a great deal but yielded very few highlights. Uh, Verlein's Mexico performance, Lotter's podium, in Valencia, some of the you know strong performances, but I mean, you know, two podiums and a, and a couple of poles is just not enough for a team of uh, Porsche's stature. And I think again, there'll be some big debris going on down Weissach Way um, this summer for sure. Yeah, Lotter, Lotter uh, who re-signed actually ahead of Berlin for another season next season, has had some. There's been some dubious things going on. I think with Andre, I don't know if it's desperation. It probably is um, just getting fed up and, you know, bringing the pretty bellicose tactics out. And, um, you know, we, we saw a bit of that with, with Sims, but it was, it was give and take actually on that occasion. But, you know, Lotterer did have uh, a turfed um, Blomqvist off in, in race one. And yeah, he, um, he's had some, uh, he's had some very, very brawny moments. Let's leave it like that. You mentioned earlier that Roland's uh, off to Mahindra, so it was a good timing for Alexander Sims to pull off uh, one of his best qualifiers of the season and then convert that into fifth place for Mahindra. It's, he needed that, didn't he? Yeah, he's had a disappointing second half of the season, that's for sure. It's not really worked for him. And um, we know that he can pull out a top draw performance um, on, on many occasions. And he did just that with, with fifth, a really good fighting fifth on Sunday. Came in for a bit of criticism, but honestly, I didn't see anything particularly serious there and you know I don't think I don't think anyone would stand up and say Alexander Sims is a bully he's like the the polar opposite of a bully but you know he's no pushover and um, I think I think that was a, a, a statement of intent for next season again the assumption is is that that, that Sims will stay and, and, and be joined by Roland but there has been no confirmation of that um, but yeah I think you can assume that that sadly Alexander uh, sorry Alex Lynn will be uh, will be out of that seat and potentially uh, could be out of Formula E, which is just, just a, yeah, just a tragedy, really. I mean, I just going on to to Lynn, I I've really been impressed again this season with him. And I, I don't know, it's like, do do we see a different thing than than, than other <laughs> seat? I don't know. It's just you know the guy. You do wonder sometimes, don't you? Yeah, I mean the guy the guy pulls out several top performances, in, amazing Super Pole conversion. Um, some great results, a win in London, um, and he finds himself without a drive again. Um, yeah, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know what to say. There's there's a, there's a trait there, and it's certainly not Alex's um, of Alex's doing. So very peculiar. But there we go. It's uh, it's a brutal world in professional motorsport. He knows that, and um, you know, I'm sure whatever he does next season, he'll be doing it well. Now, in seventh place from basically the back of the grid was Sam Bird salvaging something for Jaguar Racing. Um, he must have put in an amazing drive. I mean, obviously there were those early retirements, but most of it wasn't captured on TV. And how the hell did he manage it, Sam? By being Sam Bird. 
I mean, simple, you know, when, when Sam's on it, he doesn't mess about, he's coming through. And yeah, it's a shame we missed some of that because um, he had a, quite a big grin on his face afterwards. Yes, there was the disappointment of not being able to challenge for the title, which at one stage, you know, he led he led it on a couple of occasions, didn't he? And, and that must have been the, the bigger picture disappointment for him. But I think, yeah, just from a racer's point of view, he, he got stuck in and he came from 22nd to 7th. In what it's, it's got to be one of the drives of the season. France did one yeah. of those early in the season. Can't remember where. There's been several that Sam has been involved in. in they don't always come off, uh, but when they do, they're bloody spectacular and, and actually contributed to to Jaguar being able to secure um, to secure second in the team's championship. You know, they were just uh, they were just eleven points behind Mercedes at the end, but it's their best points total and their best finish in the table so that's probably worth a few quid as well yeah worth worth a few bob and again just i think for momentum and morale although there was the disappointment of evans's really unlucky uh, unfortunate retirement from that race uh, they did have something to celebrate and they they got their best their best uh, result in formula e by finishing second and, and that added momentum will be should give them you know, one of the, the final things they need to really try and stamp their authority on a, on a championship campaign next year. Uh, Rennie Rass took ninth, but it wasn't exactly the starring display that we'd seen for him and uh, teammate Lucas Degrassi on the Saturday race. Obviously, we'll we'll get a, more into Audi and its legacy uh, when we do our season review, but I think it's fair to say that they will be a big loss to the series. Yeah, they will. I'll miss them, and I think lots of people will miss them. And, you know, Audi is a... A prestige manufacturer with so much great history in in motorsport, and you know, with with people like Degrassi and, and Alan McNish and, and Tristan Summerscale and, and the team that they have there, um, they're just yeah, just super people to be around, and um, and they go racing the, the the professional and correct way. I I yeah, I thought Rast was was great again, although you know it didn't again. It was a little microcosm of his season, tremendously quick, but often slightly on the edge i mean he, he had a he had a skirmish with Vern on the final lap of the the season which um uh, got him you know got him some points and pushed jev out but i think jev was beyond caring by then to be honest with you <laughs> but uh you know ras was great and you know and, and and came from the back actually started from the pit lane as i think a lot of people missed that on sunday they elected to start from the pit lane and save some energy and it kind of came back to him a fair bit. I think Rast has been terrific this season. I think if you're doing a top ten drivers, he's he's well in the in the in the top ten for me. I thought he's been absolutely. Oh well, fantastic. We'll, we'll well we'll save that for another. We what well, we got four and a half months before the next race. I, oh. I think we'll we'll be doing all sorts. Great, of another rod for my own back. Thanks. <laughs> there you go. Um, I was personally really pleased to see that the part, the final point went to Tom Gromquist, uh, who one of the qualifying laps of the season, I think, to get the uh, Neo three 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 into Super Pole and. Uh, to get a point in what is clearly the slowest car on the grid. He's a great kid as well. I first met him when he was a finalist in the um, McLaren Autosport BRDC Award. And he's, he's a great kid, isn't he? He is. Yeah, I really like Tom. He's he's a great guy. And um, when you say it was one of the laps of the season, I think, yeah, when you take into account the uh, what he's got at his disposal and the resources that that team has, you, you're absolutely right. It was a tremendous lap but he did sustain it in the race i mean he was you know he was he was on merit he was in the top 10 for the majority of the race and then slipped out and then picked up the the final point deservedly after the vernon rast incident there is a fascinating backstory to this weekend for neo 333 which we 
featured on the site on uh, on Tuesday, and it's that little known to anyone was that they were compromised severely by an early COVID positive test um, when they arrived at, in Germany on, I think it was Wednesday. And uh, Thursday was a very difficult day. They were down to the bare bones. They they had a skeleton staff. I don't think there were more than sort of, you know, eight or nine people in the pits on Thursday. And I think about seven of the team were isolating for the whole weekend and obviously will be continuing to do so. Very difficult circumstances. When you consider all the work, you know, the, the teams don't get access to the to their pits and their car until the Thursday morning. So it's all hands to the pump. They actually borrowed or begged or stole, I don't know, uh, some personnel from Mahindra and I think Mercedes. And and that's a really, I think that's a really nice kind of old school story of, of the paddock sharing some of their human resources to, to help a team that everyone knows is, is up, up against it anyway, let alone when something like this happens. So really nice story. And Blomqvist, certainly rewarded the team with with his drive and uh, you know again another driver facing maybe an uncertain future i think i think that performance um certainly puts his hat into the ring uh, you know i can't i can't imagine that they would uh, make a decision based on commitment and uh, and talent when you see what he was able to achieve with that with that car so yeah let's let's hope tom's in the championship next season and Neo 333 can regroup and, and pick up. It's been a di- another difficult year, not quite as cataclysmic as, as last season, but and, and actually, no, the season before, season five was a real horrific one, wasn't it? And then they've real, they've rebuilt and, yeah, I think everyone's sort of, you know, urging them along to, to get into that midfield battle because when they do, they can they can show they can really race and, and pick up some scraps when, when possible. So we sort of covered off what happened on Saturday where, um, Degrassi turned back the clock and you know, it was like a season three win for him and um, Mutara and Evans completed the podium to put themselves into that uh, ultimately fateful uh, title challenge. I guess the only other piece of ground to cover is the Diaz to Cheetahs. Uh, they were sixth and seventh on Saturday having uh, locked out the front row and, and ran one and two but it was quite a fractious atmosphere certainly on the team radio Sam maybe not for the first time. Yeah, it was. Yeah, these these things have happened before. The the orchestration of the strategy, such a knife edge thing to do. Um, and yeah, I don't know what the percentage of um, conversion is on on that happening successfully. But it seems that DS to Cheetah and other teams, to be fair, they often fall foul of that. And um, yeah, just strategy wise, it, it just didn't work out for them. I think they were caught on the hop a little bit with those on attack mode behind them and, and they didn't probably adapt as quickly as possible, especially with the one activation of eight minutes of the um, 35 kilowatts extra power for the attack modes as well. When you factored all that in and the Costa had a slight regen problem as well, it just turned against them. They went from a one to to effectively, you know, uh, sixth and seventh, which they got at the end of the race. And yeah, I was, I was listening to their radio and it's one of these things, isn't it, where the radio's public and in the heat of the moment, the drivers and especially somebody, a driver who wears their heart on their sleeve in the immediacy of, a, of, of an incident or a race such as Jean-Éric Verne. And um, yeah, and, and it's public and, and, and it's up there for everyone to hear. Interestingly, I spoke to James Rossiter at length after the race and you know he said he, as an ex-driver, of course, he understands that frustration. He'd prefer it to be internalised and, and kept you know out of the bounds of the public. But the great thing about 
Formula E to some extent is we, you know, we get the access and the fans get the access to that. So, yeah, I just hope it's. Uh, I just hope there's an age check on it when, uh, when the, when they, when people access it because it was, yeah, there's some fruity language that's for sure. But yeah, as I said, heat of the moment, it didn't happen for them. It was a real difficult one, and it it actually seemed to have a bit of a sort of knock on, and I don't know they that I I sort of hinted. I hinted at elements there that after the qualifying that there may have been a little bit of overconfidence going into that race. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but there certainly, it just certainly didn't happen. And, and any, any idea of a, a title, a title push was quickly went away and, and suddenly didn't get any better. They had a, a host of little issues and things that were going wrong technically. Um, and yeah, there's again, there's going to be one hell of a long, debrief and an investigation as to how it just ebbed away for Diaz to Cheetah. Yeah, as you mentioned, De Costa still had a really faint outside chance of retaining his title on Sunday before he was eliminated in what in football parlance you would call shithousery by uh, Lucas de Grassi. I think we could really do without that sort of thing now it's a world championship, don't you? Yeah, I, I like that technical term, V2B. I'm sure the FIA used that in the stewards' room. <laughs> but, but <laughs> they should do. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, yeah, I believe that. I didn't speak to Degrassi, but I claim that I heard that he claimed the steering wheel was uh, knocked out of his hands. That's that's probably like the equivalent of um, you know, sort of <laughs> walking into a door or something, isn't it? When you've had, there's been some fisticuffs, I don't know. But it was. Um, yeah, he he. Let's say he inadvertently fed the Costa into the wall, or or, or maybe he not so inadvertently. Only he knows. Uh, he, what I do know is that he did apologise profusely to the Costa afterwards. Um, so that's that's the start. But you know, these kind of incidents just aren't needed, are they? You mentioned that at World Championship level, and I think some of these brutal um, tactics actually. They need to be. They need to be looked at. Yes, Lucas got punished and uh, his race was compromised. But I think yeah, it's too late. Then. Yeah, it's too. It's too late for the driver who's you know walking back to the pits with helmet in hand. And um, uh, yeah, I, I, it, there were occasions this season. We saw it in London as well, didn't we? Where these these kind of bullying tactics uh, that there, there seemed to be a trend of, of people who use them. Um, and I know that the phrase tactical contact is used within the sort of driver's discussions that they have together, which is uh, not great, is it? It's not a great thing to be. It's a, it is a non-contact sport at the end of the day, and um, it's it's not needed. You know, you can have clean racing at Templehof. Te- the expanses of somewhere like Templehof, you know, you don't need that kind of... Uh, no, it's not Hong Kong. You know, it's impossible to pull a move off at Hong Kong without rubbing somebody one place or the yeah. other, but... Templehof is like four cars wide most of Well, it. we saw at Monaco, didn't we, that thrilling fight between Evans, De Costa and Freund. So I don't think there was, yeah, maybe a slight contact, but there was never anything malicious or dirty and there was great respect in in leaving just enough room. And this is on Mo- at Monaco. So why, why drivers can't manage it at the expanses of Templehof or you know other tracks? I don't know. Um, but there's certainly, there are certainly traits with some drivers whereby... You know, if 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 you are level going round a hairpin, it seems to be justified to feed somebody into the wall, which you know should be uh, yeah should be rightly punished pretty severely. Well, thank you, Sam. As I mentioned right at the top, we'll spend more time looking back on a race by race, team by team basis uh, over the championship uh, over the weeks to come. Um, I hope you enjoy Le Mans this weekend, and uh, for all you out there, please keep an eye out. Uh, for Sam's latest Formula E news. I'm sure there's likely to be further developments from this weekend. Hopefully, 
maybe some clarity on the Mercedes things on the hyphenrace.com. Goodbye. <laughs>